Well, good morning, everyone. It is a privilege again to come to you with the Word of God, and uh, we're approaching this uh, passage here this morning, and uh, it's not a passage which uh, many of us would preach on, or many churches would preach on, yet it is an important passage for the church. Uh, much of the reason why expository preaching is so important is because we don't skip any verses. And when we don't skip any verses, we find that God actually has a lot to instruct us in, in terms of how do we build a healthy church. This is in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 33 to 40, and we're in biblical manhood and womanhood in this passage. Let's read through this together and find out what God has for us. It says, As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they're not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there's anything that they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home. Was it shameful for a woman to speak in church? Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones that he has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things which I'm writing to you are a command of the Lord. Anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. It's bound in the word of prayer. Our Father, we are coming to this passage, and we're realizing that this is a passage that is difficult to interpret. In fact, the whole chapter, 1 Corinthians 14, is rather controversial. And yet we realize that your word is ever more clear. It's controversial because it is standing in dichotomy or such a difference between the world's uh, interpretation of life, and yet your words are ever more clear. We pray that we will embrace your words and understand what your word has to say, even understand the benefit of your words and obeying you so that um, we may just fully place our trust in you, Lord. Uh, if there's any um, uh, attitude in which uh, we don't want to hear from you this morning, we pray that you would uh, eliminate that in our hearts and let us be humble before you and to see that your word is actually beneficial for us and for the church. We thank you, Lord, for this lesson, and we pray that you will guide us and lead us according to your perfect will and help us to apply uh, this uh, for your church, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God has designed his creation to function in community and also for individuals of that community to take its proper roles. We can see this in the design of animal world, whether it be the birds of the air or be the pride of lions or insects in the insect world. You can have lions and the way in which they hunt, and each lion has a job. There are the weaker lions who would drive the prey to its position, and the stronger lions will attack from the center and from the side to make sure that the hunting is successful. You have the birds, and the birds, they fly in formation. You have the lead bird, who would, would fly, and the other birds will fly in formation to help that the flying would be easier and would be quicker and also would be faster and also be more protected from other prey. You also have the insect world. The insect world functions in community as well, and each insect has its proper role. Uh, some insects are to stay in the hive to take care of the young, and other insects are out there foraging and protecting the community. Every single individual in the community has its role to advance the community in itself. However, this is not just in the animal world. This is really all of God's creation. Uh, I was listening to Matthew playing music this week, and he was playing piano, and uh, he's playing individual notes, and he's learning how to play, and he's playing these notes by, one by one. And slowly, he's learning to put the notes together to make chords, and slowly, he's also putting 
different notes with these chords to make a song, and he's trying to learn how to play with both right hand and left hand. Individual chords form, a, uh, individual notes form a chord, and chords with other notes form a song, and all of it play in harmony with each other to form something that is beautiful. This is God's creation for us. God's creation is that we as individuals will function in community and take up roles within that community. And the reason why the world is the way it is is because God himself is also a God of community. In fact, we see this very clearly in Genesis chapter 1, where God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are all very much involved in a creative act. You have God the Holy Spirit in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, who, who was hovering over the waters. And you also have God the Father, according to Genesis chapter 1, verse 3, who spoke and things came into being. And God the Son, of course, was in place as well as he was the creator God himself. He is one who created according to Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, in which it says, For by him, that is by Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. You have Jesus, who is the creator God, God the Father, who is the one who spoke, and the Holy Spirit, which is involved in all the process of creation in that very beginning of this world. So God is a God who was in community, who is in community, even though he is one God, but three persons. And when he made man, he made man to be in community as well. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, he said, let us make man in our image. And in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, so he did. He made man and woman in the image of God, male and female. He created them. And with that, he also created the order of leadership and order of submission, as there is leadership and submission even in God himself, in the Godhead in which the Son submits to the Father, the Father leads, and the Holy Spirit also proceed, is proceeding from the, both the Father and the Son. So is there submission in the creative act of God in men, in which women are called to submit to men, and men is called to lead the woman in that marriage setting. We see this in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, in which woman was created to be a helper fit for man, while man was to be the protector and the leader. Man's name was Adam. Adam is coming from the word Adama, which means ground. Ground is something which the Adam, the man would till and, and, and grow stuff from. He's the one to protect. He's the one to lead. He's the one to guide his family. He's the one to take that role of um, guiding the family in that marriage setting. And so in a sense, we see that even with men and women, there is a role of leadership and role of submission. God has designed men and women to operate in that way. God has designed the world to operate in a way of community in which there are individuals within that community operating their individual roles. However, we also saw in the very beginning when mankind sinned against God, it was in the backdrop of not obeying God's ways specifically to this submission to this community. God, of course, is God, and He has determined man to function in such a way so therefore, any sin ultimately is a sin against God in not submitting to God. However, when mankind sinned against God, it was in the opposite of what God designed men and women to live. Man is called to lead the woman. Woman is called to submit to the man and follow that leadership. However, when sin came and tempted mankind, she went for Eve. And Eve, instead of leaning toward the leaning into the leadership of her husband, even though her husband is very new at it, she did not. 
She did not lean into the leadership of her husband. As a result, she took the leadership. She sinned against God. She ate the fruit. And we saw also is that she led her husband into that sin. Was done already. So her husband was not asked to lead her. Her husband was asked to follow her. And her husband did. And her husband also failed in that way. So sin was brought into the world. It was brought into the backdrop or brought into the world through the backdrop of men not leading and women not submitting to the role of being a helper fit for men. So in that sin, God, of course, is going to have to judge the world. Sin brings forth death and sin brings forth judgment. There is hell and eternal damnation for anyone who is not holy and righteous before God. So God, who is love, and this is really the story of all the scripture, is seeking to bring humanity back to himself. We see God, through the Son, Jesus Christ, bring the gospel to this world. Jesus, who is God, who is God, the Son, came to the world and lived the perfect life. And his perfect life, he gave his perfect life to us who believe. If you believe in Jesus, you will have his righteousness. You will have his perfection, the perfection which you need to be in the presence of God. However, there's a sin issue. As you sin against God, as you have committed transgression before God, God must punish sin. So that punishment was laid upon Jesus himself as Jesus died on the cross for our sins. Jesus paid for the punishment of God by enduring the wrath of God. Then he rose from the dead to show us that this is not a fairy tale. For a lot of religions in this world, what they're going through is that they're just simply preaching some kind of message to help you feel good, to help you feel that uh, this will help you bear, um, uh, better your moral lives. However, for us as Christians, we know that this is not a fairy tale because when we die, we will rise again. There's power in the gospel. There's power in believing in Jesus Christ. There's power in resurrecting from the dead. We will be forever with God. This is real. So therefore, what we see also is that the gospel is the one that is real for us. It's not just real for us in this world, but it's one which is real for us for all eternity. As God saves us, what we're called to do now is to follow him. And as we're following him, we're coming to 1 Corinthians, and where we're seeing is instructions of God to follow him. There are a variety of different things which God has called us to follow him in. And here in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 33 to 40, we're seeing a specific element of following God in which we're called again to embrace the biblical manhood and womanhood which is designed for men and women to live in. Namely, men is to lead the church. Men lead their homes while women is to submit to that leadership while being helper for men in that. And we're going to see a couple of aspects of this and as well as the seriousness of obeying this command. First of all, we're going to see God's command for churches to be led by men. Churches are to be led by men. We see this in verse 33 to 40. Let's turn to it. And it says, As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they're not permitted to speak, but should be in submission as the law also says. Now, here we come to a very difficult and rather controversial passage regarding how the church should function, namely women submitting to men while men lead the church. Now, this is in, uh, in collaboration or just in, 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 in cooperation with so many different things which Paul has been speaking to the church about. 
Paul has been speaking to the church regarding how to be a healthy church around a variety of different issues, around love, around the Lord's table, around purity, around uh, unity within the church. He's been speaking to the church on a variety of different issues regarding how the church needs to be a healthy church. And the reason why Paul has been speaking to the church to be a healthy church is because the Corinthian church has not been a healthy church to a large degree. And the reason why is because the Corinthian church has been struggling in the very attitude of pride. A lot of members in the church are seeking to uplift themselves, exalt themselves in their abilities, in their services, rather than exalting God. So what you, happen, what you have within the church is that each individual exalting themselves in their abilities and their service rather than exalting God. If everybody's doing so, what you're going to have is dissension within the church because there's no unity in vision, no overall goal to glorify God. If everybody's doing their own thing, then there will be strife and envy. And this certainly is what we saw in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 3, which Paul rebukes them by saying, For you are still of the flesh. For while the jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? This is what happened in the Corinthian church. The jealousy, there is strife, there are people behaving in a human way. So when Paul is speaking to the Corinthian church regarding how to be a healthy church, he gives them the body analogy, saying that within the body, in the physical body, that is, there are different portions of the body. You know, there are the eye, there are the hands, there are the inner organs, there are all kinds of uh, members of the body which are needed for the body to function as an overall body. Without any organs, without any parts of the body, certainly we will not be able to function. So some people want to be the eye, some people want to be the hand, some people want to be the head. This was happening in the Corinthian church. People want to be the notable portions of the body of Christ. They want to be a notable portion in the sense that they want other people to see them in what they do, not realizing that the parts of the body which are not seen are also important. That is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 17, If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were a ear, where would be the sense of smell? The body needs the inner organs. The body needs the lung. The body needs the heart. The body needs the spleen. The body needs the stomach. You need all these things. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 22, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are actually indispensable. The parts of the body which are unseen are actually more needed. So therefore, there are parts of the body which are unseen. For example, we see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 28. There are helping, there's administration, there are various parts of services which are needed within the body of Christ, which are not seen. And each one of us within the body of Christ need to appreciate that and to understand that all of us are working toward the overall goal of glorifying God. Not ourselves, but God. Perhaps one of the a great description of what a healthy church looks like is seen in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10 through 11, in which Peter says, As each has received the gift, use it to serve one another. As good stewards of God's varied grace, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as God or as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. It's all about God. It's all about Jesus, and if you have that, then you would have a healthy church. Now, the question is, and this is where we were raised to ourselves and I raised to you, if you walk into your church and the church is not healthy and everyone's bickering with each other and there's a lot of people who are working toward themselves and their own pride instead of working toward the glory of God, which part of the church would you change first? 
Which part of the church would you correct first? If you walk into the church and you're the pastor and you're thinking about, okay, I'm going to help this church live a holy life as Paul is instructing here, which part of the church would you instruct first or which part of the church would you try to change first? If you're listening to John speak now, just now, and, and myself and even from 1 Corinthians, you would know that a part of the church you need to change first is what? The teaching, the pulpit. That is the first part that you change. Because with teaching, there is instruction for the entire church. Of course, you want to instruct the entire church to be a healthy church and a variety of different services because you want to disciple men and women in their goals and their services. However, as a church, you need to change the pulpit first. If the pulpit is delivering healthy and godly and biblical message, the entire change, church will eventually change its position or change its direction to follow the teachings because they could see that it is coming from the Word of God. This is exactly what Paul is doing in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 because he needed to let the church know that as I'm changing this church, I'm instructing the church, I need you to function in such a way that the teaching portions of the church need to be healthy. There are two ways which the church had been teaching one another within the Corinthian church. There was prophecy, there was tongues. Prophecy, we saw, was the regurgitation of the Word of God to the people of God. And tongues, which we saw also, is of the same nature, except it was in a different language. It was a language, a foreign language, a human language. And 1 Corinthians chapter 14, actually, or chapter 13, actually described tongues having an angelic language. However way which you would describe tongues to be, it has to be a real language that can be interpreted. So therefore, what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 is this. If you're going to describe a tongue or if you're going to teach something through a tongue, you have to make sure that it is interpreted. You have to make sure that people understand it because there are demonic tongues throughout all the world. And in fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we see that there are ecstatic speeches that are demonic, which is happening in the Greco-Roman world and certainly could be brought into the church. So if it's demonic brought to the church, it's going to be a big problem for the church. So Paul says, examine the tongue. No one who is of the Holy Spirit can ever say Jesus is de- uh, of, of the, Jesus accursed, and no one is of demons can say that Jesus is the Lord. So therefore, make sure that you check the tongue to make sure that it is of God. And the way that you check the tongue is by making sure that it is interpreted. Don't just let someone come in here and speak in tongues over the place without interpretation because someone can very well be speaking demonic tongues or they're just making it up as they go along. It's not edifying to the church. So make sure that whatever church is receiving is of benefit for the church in the proper communication, in the, in the teaching portions of the church. And if there's no interpreter, we see this very clearly in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 28. Those who speak in tongues should be silent within the church. Let them keep silent that the prophecies of those who can speak prophecy continue in the church. So Paul actually said, if you can prophesy, prophesy. But even those who prophesy, which is a regurgitation of what God wants the church to know in the very words of God, they also need to be assessed. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 29, we see that others will weigh in to what they're saying. It's not a freebie. It's not someone just can come up and everybody can just say whatever is on their mind. Because according to 1 John chapter 4, there are many false prophets also, as there are many people who speak in false tongues. So many false prophets have gone into the world. So you have to make sure that you check on them, that this is not a false prophet who is speaking from demons, but they need to be speaking from God. So therefore, check on that to make sure they are. So with that, we see God's communication to the Corinthian church regarding what needs to be communicated. Make sure that the teaching portions of your church is biblical. And with that, you will gradually have a healthy church. 
And even with that, what we saw also here in verse 33 is God saying, not only should you have biblical teaching in the church, you must also make sure that biblical qualified godly men are teaching. Not just biblical uh, quality, uh, uh, biblical godly women. There are many of them in the church. There are many biblical godly women in the church as they are here in our church. However, what God has called men to do is that men are to lead that portion of the church. Man is to lead the teaching portion of the church. This thing ever so clearly in order for us to have a healthy and orderly church in verse 33 to 34. And Paul is even more clear than I am because I'm afraid to say what he's saying because he's rather front, uh, front uh, center about this. He does not mince words. He says this in verse 30 to 33 to 40, 34. As in all the churches of the saints, the woman should keep silent in the churches. Can't get any more clear than that. It's very clear how the women should keep silent in the churches. And people might say, well, this is just a cultural thing that Paul is saying, as many people will read this passage and other passages in the New Testament and say, well, Paul is just being cultural because back in those days, women shouldn't be speaking. Paul is not being cultural. Paul is being very clear in verse 33. He says that in all the churches of the saints, even back in those days in the Greco-Roman world, in that Mediterranean region, there are many practices of women. You have churches planted all over the place. You have John Mark and Barnabas perhaps went to North Africa. You have Thomas, who likely went as far as India to preach the gospel and planted churches there. You have Paul, who assumedly probably went to Spain and established churches that we don't know, but he desired to go there. And so you have churches planted everywhere in that Greco-Roman world, even outside of it. And certainly there are Differences in gender practices in all these worlds. And yet, Paul is very clear in verse 33. As long as you believe in the church, you belong in the church, in the church of the saints, which is all the churches in the world, this should be your practice, which is that women should keep silent in the churches. Now, you read this passage, you say, well, this is, amen. (laughs) This is a hard passage to preach on because ultimately this is such a passage that's against the culture of our days. And yet, we need to learn this. And we need to learn how to practice this rightly because being silent in the church does not necessarily mean that women cannot speak. Does not mean that women cannot say hello to you when you say hello to them in a church setting. They can. They can say hello to you. They can say how you're doing. They can say how's your life doing. Uh, how's your family doing. How's things going. How's your work doing. They could have fellowship with you. What this means, being silent in the church, has to be understood in a broader context what Paul has been saying throughout all his New Testament scripture. Namely, that women are not to be in an authoritative position of teaching as a pastor within the church setting. This is seen clearly in a parallel passage in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12 through 14, where Paul says the same thing in which he says, in which he says I do not permit a woman, again a similar passage, to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet, for Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. So in 1 Timothy, is talking about the setting of a corporate gathering as it is here in 1 Corinthians. And that corporate gathering, Paul is saying, when you gather as a church, I do not allow women to teach and have a, or to have authority in teaching over a man, which will be the setting of a corporate gathering. She is to remain quiet in that sense. And for two reasons. Number one, Paul says this in verse 13 of 1 Timothy chapter 2. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. There's a order of creation. 
Adam was the one who was created first. God actually designed for Adam to lead, and the woman is to follow that leadership and be a helper for Adam. This is seen clearly in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, where woman was created to be a helper fit for Adam. So in that creative order, God says, this is what you should follow. You should follow it in that marriage setting, and as marriages enter into the church, because church is composed of uh, of course, folks who are married, there is that order in which women are to submit to men, not to any man. You have to submit to your husband, but also if church has selected godly men, godly elders to be part of the church, women should submit to that, and also to encourage men to step into that role. If men are to step into that role of being a godly leader, women should make room for that. We're going to talk more about that later in this passage. So there is a making room for men to step up within the church as a matter of a creative order of God. And also in verse 14, we saw the second reason was because Adam had been given this role to protect women from sin, but that didn't happen in the very beginning. In the very beginning, it says in verse 14 of, uh, again, going back to 1 Timothy chapter 2, Adam was not deceived, but woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Here you have the woman who was deceived. It doesn't mean that men couldn't have been deceived. Men could be deceived as well. But he wasn't given a chance by the woman in the sense that woman needed, was called by God to lean into that leadership in the very beginning as Adam was called to protect the woman. Now, Adam didn't do that very well. Adam was actually by the woman. But this is actually the fall of Adam as well because as leadership had been taken, as leadership positions had been filled, a lot of times what men would do is that they would just take a step back and say, well, you know what? The women are doing everything. I just, I think I just am not needed. I guess I'll just hang out here. It happens in marriage settings. It happens in church where all the women, the women in the marriage setting, the wives are doing everything and the men are just there laying back, watching TV, drinking beer, whatever it is they're doing. They're not doing what they're needed to do. And so women are called to say, and Paul is saying there, leave that space. Create that vacuum for men. Don't do it for him. Let them know that this is their job. So in that sense, it's not an insult for women to keep silent in the church because when you do keep silent in the church, a vacuum is created for men to step in. This is what God wanted men to do. So it is encouragement for the church to grow strong in this way, for men to take that leadership, for men to say this is, for women to say this is needed for you, men, to step up. And we see all kinds of examples in Scripture regarding this. And this is where Paul is getting to also in verse 34, in which he says that women are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission as the law also says. There are plenty of examples in the law that is in the Old Testament in which we see women actually creating the vacuum, creating that space for men to step into because they themselves say, if I were to step into that role, then men will continue to be weak in the nation, in the people of God, but I'm not going to. In fact, I'm going to create that vacuum so that men will step in and they will learn the lesson they need to learn so that they can actually grow to be the man of God they needed to be to lead God's people. We see this in a variety of different ways, and there are three godly women I want to show you here in the law, in the Old Testament, in which they allow men to lead. You have Miriam, who is called a prophetess, and Miriam was a prophetess who was leading in, 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 in a worship setting, uh, in a musical setting. In Exodus chapter 15, verse 20, she took a tambourine in her hand. This is after they left Egypt, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. So you have this woman who is Miriam, and she was a, uh, a prophetess, and she's leading other women, and she was in this corporate setting, and other people are enjoying her as another woman as she is presenting music to the congregation, and people are following this worship. 
However, even though Mary Ann was, lead, uh, was leading the woman in this musical presentation, she was not doing this as an individual event of her own. Because even in Exodus chapter 15, verse 1, we already see Moses and the people of God singing songs to the Lord. So you have Moses already presiding over the worship session, presiding over the congregation, and Miriam coming along and saying, hey, I got a song from the woman presenting this to you for the congregation. And this is what we seek to do even here at the First Baptist Church of Hollywood, in which we have men who start scripture reading. We start the worship service. We're setting the tone for the worship service. Then other people of different gender, uh, women can come up, and what we do is have them present music and encourage the congregation to sing songs. However, the movement always will be, and this is my pastoral heart and let you guys know, is for more and more men to step up in the worship leading of the entire church. And woman is to encourage that, and as Miriam did. We see this also in Judges chapter 4 with another person, Deborah. How Deborah also was a woman who encouraged another man to step up, namely the Barak. Barak was to step up to lead the troops of God, and this is happening during a time where Israel was rather weak. Israel has not been a nation it needed to be, and as a result of that, there has been a lack of men to lead. And Deborah could have stepped in and said, well, you know what? I'm the one to do this. I'm a prophetess. In Judges chapter 4, verse 4, it says that she was judging Israel at the time. She could have said, I'm the one to lead the troops against this enemy of God. But she didn't. She actually pushed Barak to do it. She said in Judges chapter 4, verse 6, Has not the Lord God of Israel commanded you, Barak, that you should lead the nation of Israel? Barak was scared. Barak was intimidated because he has not really stepped into that role before. He'd rather Deborah do it, but Deborah says, no, I will not do it. I will keep silent. I will move, make that room for you. I will create a vacuum for you so that you would do it. And Barak did, and Barak's name actually made it. I read it this morning in Hebrews chapter 11 into the hall of faith because he was willing to do this and step in as he's called to. And also you have Huldah, who is also a prophetess, uh, used by God in 2 Chronicles chapter 34. And in that day, Israel was also at a hard time. In fact, a lot of times when women do step up, it's because of lack of men. Because of lack of men, there's weakness in the nation. So you have Josiah, who is a king of Israel, who was only eight years old at the time becoming king. Now you have an eight-year-old boy becoming king. Your nation is uh, a little bit at a troubled time, right? It would be. So you have... Huldah, who was the prophetess at the time, encouraging Josiah, saying, the Lord is with you. The Lord is with you. God is with you in what you're planning to do. So all these women were there to prepare men for ministry, to encourage men, to leave the vacuum for men to do what men needed to do. This word perhaps is best described to us in verse 34, or this act of word, that is, the word submission. It says in verse 34, women should be in submission. The word submission is wakupatasso, which literally means to place oneself under. It's a volunteer word. It's not a coercion word, meaning that women are not coerced under men, but rather women are actually placing themselves under the leadership of men voluntarily. It does not mean that women are not able to do it. There are plenty of women who could teach very well. There are plenty of women who could lead very well. But they're choosing to place themselves under the leadership of men voluntarily knowing that when men does grow up, when men do grow up and lead their families well and lead their churches well, it will only be for the benefit of the church and of the family. It's true. When a family has a strong man leading it, it's a strong family. When a church has strong men leading the church, it's a strong church. 
And so women recognize that, godly women who recognize that are willing to create the vacuum for men to step into. If they encourage them to do it, even though they themselves could do it better, they say, you know what, you do it so that you can grow in this. I think about this week, I was talking to an individual about the prison system in America, and, uh, and the individual telling me about the ministry that this person is doing in the prison ministry. I was encouraged by it, and I was looking at some articles in the prison system in America, and they're building another mega prison somewhere in America. And this article was saying that the prison system are all filled up already, and they need another prison to fill more people in. I was looking at a picture of this prison, which is all filled. It's all men. All these men just stuck there like sausages in a can, just there, like not doing anything. They're fighting with each other, bickering with each other, killing each other. Instead of using their energy for the glory of God, taking care of their family and, taking, and leading their churches. It's a sad thing to see. And yet, this is what happens when the, the nation is falling apart. When a nation falls apart, men fall apart. Isaiah chapter 3, verse 25, 26, God says, this is how I judge you, because you have now obeyed me. He says, your men shall fall by the sword, your mighty men in battle, and her gates shall lament and mourn, empty she shall sit on the ground. It's what happens when a nation falls apart. It's what happens when the church falls apart. It's what happens when the family falls apart. It's when the men are not in leadership and women are stepping up, having to fill that role, and they're not able to do what men are called to do. And when they do that, men are not stepping up because they're just thinking that women are going to take care of it. In that sense, we have a weak nation. You have a weak family. You also have a weak church. What God's call for church to do is church is to be a breeding ground for godly men. It's to be a breeding, breeding ground for godly men. We see this in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8, which Paul says, I desire then that in every place men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger and quarreling. That's what men should do. Men should lead the congregation with holy hands without quarreling. This is what creates or uh, facilitates a healthy and a powerful church when men are coming together and they're not fighting, they're not comparing with one another who's the alpha male. Oftentimes when men come together, they just want to measure themselves with one another and say, well, I make more money or I'm bigger, I'm taller, I'm more muscular, whatever it is, right? But Paul says when the church comes together, you guys should all come together without quarreling. Come together with one goal in mind. This is something that which we even talked about in our staff meeting or with our, some of the leaders in our church, that within elders and within pastors, there is no such thing as an alpha male. I mean, pastors even have different roles in the sense some pastors are teaching, some pastors over discipleship, some pastors over administration, but there is no alpha male even among pastors. Every pastor has their voice. And when they do recognize the voice of God and leaning into the voice of God, they come to some kind of agreement. Of course, when we, in the polity of the church, perhaps different polities will have uh, a uh, unanimous decision by the pastors, or some polity will say, well, we have voting, and majority of the pastors, if they say, think that this is the way to go, then you have a unanimous voice. But once that unanimous, vo- unanimous voice has been reached, that is the direction the churches go into, and all the men who are leading that church in a godly way are to lift their holy hands without anger and quarreling because the church are following the direction of godly men who are leading it. So you have men who are leading the church, who are agreeing with each other, who are in, um, in, in cooperation with each other so that the church knows where it is going and the trusting of these godly men. I think about Elizabeth Elliot, how she built that church by God's grace in Ecuador, in the Aka tribe. Her husband, Jim Elliot, passed away because the people killed him. 
Now she went back in, and she decided that she is going to serve the people by sharing the gospel with them. And miraculously, people believed. So what do you do when you have a group of people now believing in God? And she alone, as a woman, is the most single qualified person to lead that church. Do you lead it? Turned out that she didn't. She privately discipled men, qualified men, or even men who might be qualified so that they could be the ones to lead that church. And this happened. And these men rose up, and they became leaders of that church in the Aka tribe. So women like her who are godly stepped aside and created a vacuum for men to lean into. In this very sense, we see that is why Paul says woman is to keep silent in the churches. It's not an insult to woman, but rather it's instruction for women to recognize the need for men to step up. And men, as men, you, if you're a man here today, you have the need to step up. God's commanded men, intended for men to lead God's church. Not only so, not only is God intending for men to lead his church, God also intended for men to lead their homes, their homes as well. We see this in verse 35. It says, if there's anything they desire to learn, that is woman, if they desire to learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home. For it is shameful for women to speak in church. As you read through this, you say, well, Paul, you're just a chauvinist pig. It's like, you don't even allow women to learn. You have to ask their husband. That's not Paul's intent at all. Paul's intent is not to suppress women. Paul's intent is to build strong men so that strong men will actually lead the whole church to be strong and thereby have strong women. See, back in the days of Paul, what happened is that women are taking leadership. The way they take leadership is by questioning, asking questions within the church setting. And it's like a church setting back in the, uh, in the Bible study, perhaps more like, those, more like a Bible study where it's more interactive. And the way that you ask a question, we've experienced this before even in Bible studies, and people who have been disrupted in Bible studies, you've seen this, when people come and ask questions, not really asking a question, okay? They're just giving a comment. They want people to know what they're thinking. So by their question, they're leading the whole people who are there in their direction. And Paul is saying, hey, there are women here who have been disrupted. They've been disrupted in such a way that they're not really asking real questions, but rather they're just trying to attract other people to see how spiritual, how mature, how great the leaders they are so that they can honor and exalt themselves. And so Paul says, you know what? Instead of having women do that, instead of having wives do that, what these wives should do is that they should ask their husbands at home. Say, so, well, why should they ask their husbands at home? The reason is this. If your woman, if your wife is being really extrovert and just asking questions, leading the congregation, and the husband is not that spiritually mature at the moment, the husband can say, well, you know what? My wife knows everything. My wife is more spiritually mature than I am. I'm just going to leave the leadership role to my wife and let her do the leading of my life and also of my family and also of the church. While Paul is saying here is this. Paul says, you have some questions, go ask your husband. Your husband doesn't know, let him find out. Let him find out. Let him be a disciple. Let him go to other godly men and find out from them to come back and teach you so that he may be in the process of growing alongside with you so that he can actually be the leader that you need for your home. See, godly men need to be encouraged. If you don't encourage them, if you don't create a vacuum for them, they may just step back and say, well, you know what? I guess I'm not needed. I'm just going to be right here doing my own thing, which I think I do well. But if you create that vacuum for them and let them know that they're needed, they're actually going to pursue that. That's what God's saying to the woman. Let your husband feel the need for you to be discipled by them because they need to be the godly men to do, they need to be godly men 
uh, in their character, and they need to be doing so anyways for you. Peter, uh, Paul said this in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 4 through 5, and this really is the call for all men of the church, even though elders are called to this, but all men of the church should have this as their goal. It says this, he must manage his own household well, without dignity, keeping his children submissive. If someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? So the key is clear, right? We can clap for that. He must know how to manage his own household well. How will he manage his own household well if the woman is not given an opportunity to do so? If you do everything for him, if you just put everything in front of him and say, do this, do that, do this, do that, and he does not manage his own household well, oh, if you do everything for him, he doesn't even have to do this or do that, then he's not going to feel the need to be the man that he needs to be. So Paul says, let him be it. Encourage that. I think about a wonderful woman that exemplified that in the Old Testament. You know who that is? Sarah. First Peter chapter 3, verse 5 through 6, I should talk about Sarah. How she was submissive to Abraham. And Abraham was not a, that great of a husband, by the way. We'll talk about that. It says in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 5 through 6, For this is how we see holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything, that is frightening. So you have Sarah here who's calling Abraham Lord. You say, well, I'm not going to go that far calling my husband Lord. You don't have to. But the good example of Sarah is this. Abraham was not a great of a husband. He wasn't. I mean, we saw this this morning. He almost denied Sarah. I mean, he did deny Sarah. Almost lost her as his wife because he was afraid for his life. And eventually, later on in his life, he actually had a relationship with Hagar because Sarah told him to. And that's not something that he should have done and caused so much trouble for all the rest of humanity, for all the rest of history. Abraham was not great of a husband. And yet, the later part of Abraham's life, when God um, visited him before he went to Sodom, you have Sarah who heard God saying that Sarah is going to have a son, and she was saying in her own heart, that how is it that it's going to happen given that my Lord is of this age? She submitted to herself to Abraham as Lord. I mean, she learned. She learned over time. And Abraham actually learned over time also to be the man that he needed to be. You see, this submission, which woman is called to submit to man, is not because men are perfect. Men are not. Many men are not. I'm not. You are not. None of the men are perfect like Christ is perfect. But that submission is not because men are perfect. That submission comes is because women are choosing to submit to Jesus. We see this in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22 to 24, in which God calls wives to submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church. His body is in himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So you have the example of motivation of wives submitting to the husband, and the reason why wives are doing so is because they're submitting to who? To Jesus, to the Lord. It's not because husbands are great. You just got married, and we read this verse all the time where perform marriage ceremony and just say, hey, you do this. It's not because your husband is great at leading you. He hasn't had a chance yet. But you are choosing to do so because you have been submitting yourself to God and he must learn in the process how to be the man that God has called him to be and you're making room for that. We see a wonderful example of Joshua who had become a man of God who leads his family well and how his leadership actually did not just affect his own family but affect the rest of the nation. 
As he entered the promised land, this is the ultimatum that he gave to the nation of Israel in Joshua chapter 24, verse 15. He said to the nation of Israel, Choose this day whom you are served, whether the gods of your fathers served in the regions beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will what? We will serve the Lord. I mean, here's the man who did what? He put his foot down, right? He put his foot down and said, I'm going to serve the Lord. My house is going to serve the Lord. I don't care what you guys are going to do. But as far as I could concern myself with, as far as where my commands go, within the realm of what I'm able to control, my family, we're going to serve the Lord. And his example set off a ripple effect for all the other families and nation of Israel, which they responded later on, saying, we will also serve the Lord. In the very beginning, it was a very powerful nation where men are deciding that they're going to lead their families and they're going to be the men that, they need, that they're called to be. And that was a strong nation back then. So you have men who are called by God to lead God's family, to lead their own family, which is God's family given to them, also, men called by God to lead God's church. And lastly, what we see is that this intent of God for men to lead should be taken seriously without excuse. It should be taken seriously without excuse. We see this in verse 36 to 40. It says, Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones he has reached? Anyone thinks that he's a prophet or spiritual? He should acknowledge that the things I'm writing to you are a command of the Lord. Anyone does not recognize this? He is not recognized. So my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. So what you have here is this. Paul is anticipating a response, and a response to which I would anticipate and many of you would anticipate too. If you were to bring this message to the people of the world, which are now... Completely the opposite of this. You have people who are confused about their gender. Not only are they confused about their gender, they're confused about their gender roles. You have men who are thinking that they're women, women thinking that they're men, men who are not taking the proper role within the family, within the church, and was a woman who are not taking the proper role within the family, within the church. You have confusion of gender in our society. And Paul is anticipating a response saying that you're going to talk back to me. I already know this. I already know you're going to talk back to me. So let me just respond to you. Or was it from you the word of God came? Are you the only ones he has reached? Like, are you going to talk back to me? Are you going to say that I'm wrong? If anyone says, he says in verse 37, thinks that he's a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I'm writing to you are a command of the Lord. I'm not speaking on my own behalf. I'm speaking from Jesus' behalf. In fact, throughout all the New Testament, as I'm speaking it, sometimes I'm wondering like, man, I just want to get past this passage. I don't want to fail anybody because I mean, as a human being, I don't want to fail anyone as well as you don't want to fail anyone. So I'm come to this passage, and I'm just like, you know what, Paul, why don't you just teach it just once? A tiny little sentence, and I'm just kind of brushed through it. And Paul could have done that. He could have said, you know what, that's what Jesus says. And I want you to know that's what he says, but I don't want to talk about it too much because uh, I might offend someone. So I'm going to just mention it once in case, you know, I'm not faithful. But I want to be faithful. I'll mention it once, but I don't want to mention it too much because I want to offend anyone. No, throughout all New Testament, it's peppered over and over and over again. I can't even escape it. I talked about this already in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and talked about men and women's role with a biblical manhood and biblical womanhood, how man is to lead. Man had the headship. And here again in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and later on in 1 Timothy, if we go through in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and Titus chapter 2, you see this over and over and over and over and over again. You can't ignore it. You're going to say, God didn't say this. You're going to escape a bunch of scripture you're going to just erase that, but you can't say God didn't tell you. God did tell you. It's everywhere. First Timothy chapter 2, verse 8, 
We read this. Paul says in every place men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger and quarreling. In Titus chapter 2, verse 2, men are called to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, love, and steadfastness. And their job, according to verse 6 through 8, is to urge the younger men to be self-controlled, to be showing themselves in all respect, to be a model of good works and teaching with integrity, dignity, sound of speech that cannot be condemned so that opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Here are the men who God's calling men to be. They're to be representing the church in such a way that by good works and by the fact that they're holy, by the fact they're sounding faith, people who are outside who are evil have nothing to say about us because men do represent the church. And then you have the woman in Titus chapter 2, verse 3 to 5. They're called to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves of too much wine. They're to teach what is good. They're to train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, to be pure, working at home, and to be submissive even to their own husband so that the word of God may not be reviled. They're to be submissive to God. They're to be submissive to their own husband. They're to learn from other older women. They're to propagate this godly woman behavior. And we see also in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11 to 12, women should learn quietly with all submissiveness. Again, this is taught again, again and again. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over men. Rather, she is to remain quiet. So you see this played out all of Scripture. God is ever so clear. You can't escape it. You can't escape it at all. If you want to read the Scripture, if you want to understand what God says, you simply cannot say God didn't say it. He did. He said it all over the place. And so other people have the excuse and say, well, you know, I, got, I know that God said it all over the place, but I just don't want to listen to it because I don't like Paul. I don't like Paul. I don't like his words. I don't like listening to Paul. And people come up to me all the time and they say, well, you know what? I read about Jesus. I read about Jesus. I like my red edition of Bible in which I can see what Jesus taught, but I don't like the rest of the New Testament. I don't like Paul. Well, the good, well, not the good news, but the real news is this. Paul actually is speaking on behalf of Jesus. He says in verse 37, if anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he shall acknowledge that the things I'm writing to you are a command of the Lord. He's not speaking from himself. He's not just telling his opinion. He's not just saying from his own whims. He's actually telling you what Jesus told him. That's why Jesus, uh, Paul said in Galatians chapter 1, verse 11 to 12, I will have you know, brothers, that the gospel that I preached to you is not man's gospel, for I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus appeared to him and told him these things. These are the words of Jesus himself. So therefore, there really is no difference between a red letter edition of the Bible where Jesus said these specific words and the black words of the Bible. They are all the words of God himself. All 66 Bible, or 66 books of the Bible, are the very words of God, breathed out by God for our instruction. They're all from God. So therefore, Paul ends with these words. Anyone does not recognize this. This is in verse 38, coming back to 1 Corinthians. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. See, people don't want to recognize this. They want to make all kinds of excuses, say, well, you know what? God called me. I'm a woman, but I'm going to be a pastor. I'm going to get my MDiv. I'm going to be a pastor. And I'm going to teach this congregation. I'm going to have oversight over this congregation. Well, what about this? Well, you know what? I'm not just going to, just not going to worry about it. Paul says, you know what? Forget you. You're not recognized. You don't recognize this? You're not recognized. He's clear. There is no such thing as a woman pastor in the Bible. There's no such thing as a woman pastor in the kingdom. 
because God actually did not recognize women to be a pastor over the entire church. Now, there are in the world, some people do recognize them. Say, oh, pastor so-and-so, and you have a woman's name. But in God's world, in God's kingdom, there's no such thing. They're not recognized because they refuse to recognize what this passage is saying. God's very clear. So in that very sense, we come to verse 39, right? Paul is very clear. God is very clear. This church is built on this foundation of what God is saying on his word. So we need to obey it. To, 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 to come to conclusion in verse 39, again, about orderly worship and to draw everything together. And this is really chapter 14 is about tongues and it's about prophecy, it's about women in leadership, about men in leadership. It says this in verse 39. So my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. And he says, but in all things should be done decently and in order. Decently in order means that what is communicated is truthful, but who is communicating it also needs to be under God's guidance as well. It needs to be biblical, qualified, godly men. So the question I have for you is this. Are you in that position? Are you walking toward that? Are you going toward the direction of becoming a godly man to lead God's church? See, a lot of times for men, the way that we function in this world is that we're really, really good at things which pertaining to our career. We're really good at things which pertain to our jobs or to our hobbies or to sports or whatever it is that we're good at with physical things. And we're, we're good at those things. We could talk about those things. We could, we could uh, teach others those things. But are you and do you have in your repertoire of skill set the ability to lead other people to become more mature in Christ? You should. You should grow that skill set as well. And as intelligent as you are, if you're good at your job, you have the ability to grow in that repertoire of skill set to lead another person to grow in Christ because it is your calling. You say, oh, you know, pastor, you're just trying to push your job off me. That's your job, pastor. It's not my job only. I want to tell you this. The reason why it is your job is for your benefit. Say if you're not married, one day you'll get married, or if you're married, do you want your wife to learn from another man, to be spiritually attached to another man, to learn from that person, or do you want your wife to be learning from you? That's your choice. Your wife needs to grow. Your wife needs to learn. Do you want your wife to be learning from another person, another man, or do you want your wife to be learning from you? The answer should be clear. The answer should be that you want your wife to be learning from you. So grow to be a man so that your wife can do that. And when you do have children, you should have your children learning from you as well because you're called to disciple your children. Now, as men of God, we're all here helping one another in that. We're not in competition. We're actually helping one another so that we together can have families that are godly and we ourselves men to lead our families so that we can have strong church together. So men actually do sharpen other men. So are you in the process of that if you're not in that right now? If you're seeking in that, if I convince you to be a man of God, to grow in that, will you be in the process of being sharpened by other men? Proverbs chapter 27, verse 17. As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. Are you sharpened by another man to grow in Christ? We have opportunities to do that here in our church. Opportunities such as small group, opportunities such as Bible studies. But if you are interested, I would love to be in small group with you. Love to share the Word of God with you. Love to have you teach me, encourage me in what you're learning. And small group is a time which we all gather together and share with one another what we're learning in the Lord. Woman, in the same way, if you're a woman today, are you learning from other godly women to be the woman that you need to be, to encourage your husband, encourage whoever that you're with, or even preparing yourself to encourage a future husband or to look for, actually, a future husband who will be that man to you? If you're not preparing yourself to lean into a future husband who will be that to you, then you're not looking for the right man. 
You need to look for a man who will be that to you. That's why women are finding the wrong man everywhere because they have not had the expectation for the man to be such a man. So women need to grow in this as well to look at other godly women and say, what kind of man should we be looking for? How can I encourage my man if I'm married or if I'm not married uh, to, to be such a man or if I'm not married to encourage myself to look for a man who is of that nature? See, much of the reason, I want to conclude with this, much of the reason why Men do grow, and I want to give women accolade in this, is that it's because women are encouraging men to do so. I want to encourage you also to do, consider this. You have the story of Priscilla and Aquila. Priscilla is a woman, and she actually encouraged Apollos privately to understand the Word of God better. You have Philip's daughter, who are prophetesses, who was not prophesying during church time, but they actually encouraged other people in the church. You have Deborah, who was... Encourage Barak to be the man that he needed to be. You have Anna in the Bible who was praying for the coming of the Messiah faithfully, serving alongside with Simeon. You have all these godly women in the Bible, and they are godly in a manner in which they create a vacuum for men to grow into. And men, are you willing to step up when that vacuum is there? It is there. And I encourage you to consider that for more and more men to step up in the leading of God's people within the church of God. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 16 says this, that we from whom the whole body joined together and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Every part of the body has a role. And when we all function in our role, we do grow up to be the church which God's called us to be. With men who are strong, with women who lean into that leadership.